pray. Um, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, um, we lift up to you this morning those men and women who are out there and, and who were out there early serving us, uh, doing hard work, doing uh, often dangerous work to, to keep our roads uh, clean and to keep our roads safe, who are going to be out there later today working long hours. We thank you for their service. We thank you uh, for the effort they put in. We pray that you bless their work. We pray that you keep them safe. We pray, Father, that you show them that in some capacity of their, their service, they are imitating in some small way the service of Jesus Christ and that they would see the connection to the greater service and sacrifice that he makes on behalf of sinners. Father, we pray this morning uh, for the people of Timor-Leste. We, we pray, Father, for the, the violence and the corruption, the pain and the agony that have been uh, caused by uh, years of uh, military action and military rule on that island. We pray for an end of those things. We pray for an end of those things primarily through your gospel, changing hearts into hearts that beat for righteousness and truth and justice and peace. We pray, Father, for the... We pray against, I suppose, Father, the, the animism on that island, the, uh, the spiritism, uh, the desire to, to worship ancestors and inanimate objects that have no power to save, but that they would find hope in the Savior. And we pray, Father, that, um, that the true gospel... Um, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, bought on the merits of Christ's blood alone, would gain a foothold, would gain an entrance, would gain a hearing on that island. We pray for your saints there. We know they're there, that they would be bold and that they would be encouraged, that they would be winsome. They would not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus, but they would be skilled and creative to meet their neighbor's needs and preach boldly the message of Jesus. Father, we pray that we would be a people that preach boldly the message of Jesus and that we would faithfully obey him and his gospel. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, you want to turn with me to 1 Samuel? We're going to be in the back end of chapter 14 and then moving into chapter 15 this morning. So turn, click, swipe, tap. It's 1 Samuel 14 and 15. little bit longer passage this morning. We're going to start in verse 47 of chapter 14, and we'll read through the end of chapter 15. 
When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly, and he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, at 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul, uh, it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. 
I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gagal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him cheerfully. Agog said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before the Lord in Galgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't have much in the way of an introduction, but you know, sometimes we can be so focused on doing good that we entirely miss God. We can be so focused on doing good that we entirely miss God. And that is the kind of the big idea here. Following God is about more than following the good. Following God is about more than following the good. I'm going to break that down, uh, this passage. I'm looking at a characterization, a command, a conflict, a confrontation, and consequences. A characterization, a command, a conflict, a confrontation, and consequences. First, the, the characterization, the passage begins with a characterization of Saul's reign. And these are common in the Bible. Actually, they're, they're a common uh, feature we find in the records of other ancient kingdoms of this region of the world. They're sort of summary statements that encapsulate the king's reign. And, and despite all the ups and downs, Saul is described as quite the warrior king. He fought the Moabites to the southeast. He fought the Ammonites to the east-northeast. He fought the Edomites to the southeast. He fought the kings of Zobah to the north. He 
And Saul even fought those Philistines who dwelt along the western coast and constantly made inroads into Israelite territory. And he fought the Amalekites to the south, all Israel's enemies all around. And we get some notes on his family, which were important for keeping track of royal records in the ancient world. But they also have some important notes for us. These names are going to come back up later. They're not just random mentions. So they're worth putting a pin in for that reason alone. But we also see this little snippet of how Saul sort of kept power in his family. And that wasn't uncommon in the ancient world. It's not uncommon, sadly, in the modern world. But we have that here. And we get this note in verse 52 that the, that the fighting with the Philistines was particularly brutal throughout Saul's reigns. And one consequence of that was that whenever he saw a particularly strong or brave young man, he attached himself, detached that man to himself. Uh, another way to put that is he conscripted the man into his army. That, that's what he's doing. He's basically forcing that man to join the army. So how might we sum up this characterization? Well, we might say that Saul was exactly what Israel wanted, for better or for worse. So if you remember back to to chapter 8, when Israel first demanded a king, uh, the, the people told the prophet Samuel back then, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And they got that. They got a man to fight their battles, just like all the nations. But remember that Samuel warned them what that might mean. It meant, among other things, the king would do things like take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. In other words, he would conscript them into his army. And the king would, Samuel said, appoint for himself commanders like Saul's nephew Abner. Saul was consolidating power and privilege to himself, just like Samuel had predicted. The only question, really, is whether it will get as bad as Samuel predicted when he said, and in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. That remains to be seen, but there's an ominous note in this characterization. And here's what's ominous about this statement. These summary statements typically appear at the end of the king's reign in the Bible or, or in similar accounts in the ancient world. So why is it appearing here at the end of chapter 14 when Saul's story is not yet over. And the reality is is that it's an eerie foreshadowing of a dark turn. And that takes us to the command. So Samuel speaks to Saul, and that that is not a small thing. Uh, If you've been following along, the last time we saw these two together was at Gilgal in chapter 13. Saul's son, Jonathan, had won a victory over the Philistines. And Saul had retreated in the face of an overwhelming reinforcement by the Philistines. And Samuel had actually told Saul that such a day would come 
when after a battle with the Philistines, he'd go to Gilgal. And when that happened, he should wait seven days. And on the seventh day, Samuel said, I myself am going to come. I'm going to offer sacrifices and I will tell you what God says you should do. But when that seventh day came, Saul jumped the gun. He offered sacrifices himself, disobeying God's instructions to the prophet. And so when Samuel did show up, and he did show up later that day, he told Saul that his disobedience meant that his reign would not result in a dynasty, but another family would rise in his family's place. And then Samuel left Gilgal without ever providing that message from God about what Saul should do. And we said at the time that it was sort of emblematic of of the word of God you know, the, the prophet being sort of the, the, the physical manifestation of the word of God, the revelation of God in the king's life being ripped from Saul's life. And so Saul's reappearance in chapter 15 is it's hope, it's possibility. <clears throat> it means not all is lost. It means another opportunity for faithfulness still remains for Saul. And while God has rejected his family from continuing in his footsteps, it doesn't mean that Saul's own reign is completely lost. And we have seen already that a mustard seed of faith exercised by Saul's son Jonathan can mean tremendous things for God's people. So what would it mean if Saul acted in faith now? So Samuel makes three points to... uh, Uh, to the king he says first of all the lord sent me to anoint you king over his people israel now therefore listen to the words of the lord and so saul is reminding saul samuel is reminding saul all these military victories aside everything you've accomplished aside whatever successes you've had it's all because of the lord saul was nothing but a farmer before god called him to be king and he's had a track record of questionable faithfulness so now therefore listen to the words of the lord that means obey be faithful pay close attention get this one right saul it's been a while since we talked you've got an opportunity then samuel says thus says the lord of hosts i have noted what amalek did to israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So that's the second thing he says. Here's what Samuel and God, through Samuel, are talking about. You have to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 17. This is right after Israel left Egypt. And they're attacked by the people of Amalek. The Israelites had never been in a war or any sort of battle. And in fact, they'd already just recently, so between the time they crossed the Red Sea and chapter 17, they'd gone through a period where they were lacking food and gone through a period where they were lacking water. So physically, they are at a point of weakness and disadvantage. The Israelites chose men to defend themselves. Moses goes up on a hill. He raises his arms with the staff of God as a symbol of God's faithfulness. And as long as he did this, the Israelites were able to hold off the Amalekites. And that, of course, was hard. And so they eventually placed stones under Moses' arms to help keep them raised. 
And, and the idea was that the Israelites would have sort of a, a visual reminder that it wasn't their strength or military prowess that saved them, but God's gracious power alone. And at the end of that battle uh, in, in Exodus 17, we read, the Lord <clears throat> said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So that was Israel's history with Amalek. That's the backstory. And by the time Saul is king, several centuries had passed. Now, God certainly could have wiped out the Amalekites in Moses' day. God is strong enough, but he chose not to because he's gracious and he's compassionate and he's merciful and he gives space for even the wicked to turn back and repent. But in 1 Samuel 15, the command comes down that the time has come. And so that's the third thing. He gives the actual command. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. <clears throat> now, the, the specific nature of this command isn't really the point of this passage. So I'd love to just kind of skip over it and get to the point. But that's a, that's a really harsh command. And I imagine for some of us, most of us, it might be really hard to just move on past that command. So what do we do with that? Well, let's talk about that. When God brought Israel into the land of Canaan, he did so at that particular point in time because he had judged that the nations there had become so thoroughly wicked, so absolutely perverse in their ethics that the time of their removal had come. Now, the truth is, all of us are pretty wicked. Scripture teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in another place, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And since, as the scripture says, the wages of sin is death, well, we all deserve to die. And God could have removed the people of that land at any time he wanted, just like he can remove the people of this land anytime he wants. But just because we're wicked doesn't mean we're as wicked as we can be. And remember how God is often described. God describes himself to Moses this way. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Slow to anger, gracious, merciful, 
but he will by no means clear the guilty. The clock on God's patience eventually runs out. That's true for individuals, and that is true for civilizations. The instruments of God's judgment are vast. Old age, sickness, chemicals, accidents, violence, natural disasters, and even war. God works through them all to bring about his just judgment. So, on one hand, the command to destroy the Amalekites is just, one, because their sin deserves it, and two, it is overdue, in a sense, because of God's mercy. And I'll also add that it is warranted for the Israelites, three, because God commanded it, not a man. God commanded it, not a man. So this isn't the sort of thing that can be done without an explicit command from God. But if that was all there were to say, uh, that would be enough, but I think we can say more. (coughs) For starters, the command to devote everything to destruction is never quite as absolute as it seems in Scripture. One One of the most famous and important examples of Israel being commanded to devote a group to destruction dealt with the city of Jericho. The Israelites were called to do something very similar to that city, but they didn't, and they weren't judged to be unfaithful. There was an exception. Do you remember what that exception was? There was a prostitute named Rahab and her entire family who were spared. Why? Because they expressed faith in the Lord and they threw in their allegiance with God's people. It reminds me of the story of Jonah, the the prophet, who told the people of Nineveh that that, that God would destroy their city in 40 days. That was Jonah's entire message, his entire preaching. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. But the people repented and God saved them. That wasn't part of Jonah's message. Probably should have been, but it didn't have to be. Salvation is always available to any who turn to God in faith. So when Israel came into the land, the people of the land could become part of Yahweh's people or they could be Yahweh's enemies. That was a choice everyone always has. There's another possibility to add to the mix. And I'm going to leave this for last because while I think there's a strong case for it, I can't make it with absolute certainty. I feel strongly about it, but I can't make it with absolute certainty. And the argument is made that when Samuel says on behalf of God, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, that this would be understood as sort of stock language, sort of like totally obliterate them. And that is nobody hearing that would have understood it to mean that they should literally kill each and every single living thing. In in practical terms, it would have meant something like show no mercy to anyone who resists you. And there's evidence for that. Uh, That's not just 
being made up out of the blue. Uh, This passage says the Israelites followed through on the command, with the exception of sparing the king and the animals, some of the animals, the good animals. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But if that's the case, if they put every single other Amalekite to death, why is it the Amalekites are still around a few chapters later in chapter 28 and in chapter 30 and the beginning of David's reign? But Saul doesn't get in trouble for allowing the general population of the Amalekites to reign. Or think about uh, Samuel, when, when Samuel hacks Agag to pieces, he says, um, now your, your mother will be childless. Well, what does his mother have to do with it if she's already gone, right? So there, there seems to be an implication in the text that this is sort of the exaggerated language of warfare that people would have understood. Um, and so that leads me to think that this language was not ever understood with sort of this sort of precise literalism uh, that the Israelites were then not slaughtering non not we're not slaughtering non-combatants in the battle. But I hold that conclusion a little bit tentatively, and I put that at the last because I look. I only have five or six days to put together a sermon. I haven't. I haven't. I'm not hundred percent on that yet. But however we are to understand the specifics of the command, that's the command. And the warrior king Saul had his marching orders. He's heard from God again. He has a chance for redemption. He has a chance to demonstrate that he can be a faithful king. And that command leads directly to the conflict. So Saul puts together his soldiers that he thinks he'll need for an operation of this size. Saul encamps at a town just north of Moloch, which was in the southern desert region. And when they approach the city, they give the Kenites an opportunity to flee. The Kenites were a group that historically had been friendly with the Israelites and lived in the same basic region. He's essentially giving them the opportunity to choose sides. God had said nothing about the Kenites. But if they're in the city, it would be hard to spare them in the midst of the battle. And then Saul attacks, and the attack is wildly successful. Not only does he destroy the leading city, but he routes the entire area. Havilah was a land directly south and a little east of the Dead Sea, and sure, uh, it was the area that stretched south and west into the Sinai Peninsula. It's a pretty big area. And then dropping to verse 8, it says he took Agog, the the king of the Malachites alive and devoted to destruction all the people of the edge of the sword. <clears throat> Again, if you take that command very literally, there were no Amalekites of any sort left besides the king. If you take that command a little bit more hyperbolically, the takeaway is probably that there were no prisoners of war. There were no other soldiers who were captured. There were no, other, there were no combatants left. Any combatants were gone. And continuing in verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. 
And all this leads to a confrontation. And this is where we get to the kind of the meat of the passage. God spoke to Samuel the prophet and told him, I regret that I've made Saul king for his turn back from following me has not performed my commandments. And notice Saul's response, or Samuel's response, excuse me. He's angry and he spends the night crying out to God. There's going to be a confrontation, but before that, there's a gut check. Samuel, unlike Saul, is a true leader. He's a model leader. He's a good leader. He's been serving Israel his entire life since he was a toddler, quite literally. And his response to sin should be the response of any good leader's response to sin. Anger and prayerfulness. Samuel is angry because he's personally invested. You get angry about the things that you're personally invested in, don't you? Anger is not always the right response, but we don't get angry about things that we're not personally invested in. Sometimes we get personally invested in things that we shouldn't be personally invested in, like the person who cuts us off on the road, but, but you know, we feel like we're threatened, and so we get angry. Right? Anger is a response of personal investment. Saul does not, or Samuel does not see Samuel's uh, Samuel does not see Saul's sin as something separate from him. Saul is his king. It affects his nation. It affects his people. It affects his family. It affects his country. It affects his civilization. It matters. He's invested. And because he's invested, he cares. He's personally connected with, what going, with what's going on. If sin has, uh, any, any good leader should be connected with the people that he or she is leading. And if sin has affected those people, whether from the top or whether from the bottom, it should anger us if we are good leaders. And it should anger us as believers in God but especially so if we are leaders. But then Samuel cries out to God. Uh, That's the type of crying that's going on in this passage. It's not here, it's not crying of like tears. It's the crying of uh, supplicating God, of of reaching out to God and, and, and reaching up to God all night long. He needs God's help. Israel needs God's help. If their king had gone astray, if their king had acted corruptly, they desperately need God. That's always true, but in that moment, it was especially true. Maybe Samuel, knowing that he was being called on to confront the king, was also calling on God for the strength necessary for that task. But but whether it was for the nation or for himself, or likely both, Samuel, as a true leader, spent his night in prayer. So after a night in prayer, Samuel then goes looking for Saul, only to find out that he had made a monument for himself and gone back to Gilgal. And so Samuel goes to Gilgal, and when he finally finds Saul, Saul tries to greet him with this sort of super holy-sounding greeting, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. 
Funny how when we build monuments to ourselves, we need to prove how spiritual we are in our next breath, don't we? But Samuel knows that, that, that Saul isn't telling the truth because God's already told him that Saul didn't keep the commandment. So he calls the bluff. Why, why do I hear these animals? Probably hundreds or thousands of animals making all this noise if you kept the commandment. That part was explicit. That part was very literal. Devote to destruction all that they have. And, and based on other places where that command is used, that, that was no doubt very literal. And, and it meant that from this battle, Saul and his men were not supposed to take any spoils from the war. Everything was to be burnt up and destroyed. It was to be handed over to God as his. And they were to enjoy no part of it. And Saul claims, well, they spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. But that's not what the command was. And Samuel spells it out from the beginning of verse 17. Saul, you were a nobody, and God chose you to be king. He demands obedience. He gave you a command, and you broke it by taking the spoils of war. And listen to Saul's words carefully, because I think you'll hear yourself in them. I know I hear myself in them sometimes. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gogal. <clears throat> now this is, the, this is the second time that Samuel has insisted he actually did what was right, even when he was confronted with his wrongdoing. He's being confronted by the prophet of God, the guy that everyone knows is the prophet of God. And twice he said, I did what was right. I obeyed, he said. I went on the mission, he said. I destroyed all the Amalekites except the king who I brought here. Wait, what's that you just let slip? Have you ever noticed that your own heart can be a bad liar? Your own heart so often gives away your guilt, doesn't it? Saul didn't fully destroy the Amalekites, and even he can't say that with a straight face to Samuel. He let their principal fighter, the king, live. And then he blame shifts, right? Very subtly, the people took the spoil. And why? For the very, very good reason of offering it as a sacrifice to God. So there's denial. I really did obey. A slip. I'm not being as fully truthful as I could be. The blame shift. Someone else was responsible for the really wrong part. The reframing. What I did was actually a really good thing. It sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? This reframing by Saul, though, is important because it's at the heart of our passage. And it leads to one of the more memorable quotes in the Bible in Samuel's response. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice (coughs) and to listen than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. To obey is better than sacrifice. It's an idea that gets paraphrased by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes and the prophet, (coughs) the prophet Hosea puts a twist on it that gets then quoted by Jesus in the New Testament. We want to simplify morality into good and bad. And if I do good things, I'm a good person. And if I do bad things, I'm a bad person. It's simple, right? You see, a modern American would probably say, Saul's heart was in the right place. But God says Saul's heart is not in the right place. In fact, it's quite in the wrong place. And what this episode with Saul suggests is that if we do so-called good things <coughs> at the wrong time or the wrong place, they, they might actually dishonor God. Uh, your first inclination, like my first inclination, is probably to think that making an offering to God is a good thing, right? Worship is good, right? How could worshiping God and offering a sacrifice be wrong? Saul is in big trouble. In a vacuum, he did nothing wrong. In a vacuum, he did a lot of good things. But if you zoom out just a little bit, you don't even have to zoom out much in his case, you can see he missed one thing that matters. He didn't obey the voice of God. And so God rejected him as king. I've, I've erred a, a bit of, a few times in recent weeks. I, I've spoken a little loosely and said that God had rejected Saul as king. And I, I, I shouldn't have said that in a, a couple of the most recent earlier passages. I should have said what God said in chapter 13 and what I said at the time in chapter 13, that, that God was taking the prospect of a dynasty away from Saul. And Saul was still king. He was still God's king. And he himself had not been rejected yet as king king but he had been rejected from establishing a dynasty because of his disobedience this however was god finally rejecting saul as king and saul begs samuel to return with him and to forgive him as if the prophet can do what only god can do but samuel tells him you rejected the word of the lord and the lord has rejected you for being king over Israel. And only then Saul can admit the truth. I have sinned, he said. But he has a new excuse. Even in admitting his sin, he can't take full responsibility. See if it sounds familiar. He says he did it because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Essentially, he's saying... The people wanted to take the spoil. And he was more concerned about what they would say about him or what they would do to him or what they would think about him than he was what God would say about him or what God would do to him or what God would think about him. 
And on that point, maybe Saul was telling the truth. We always have to be careful with Saul. But isn't that at the heart of so much of how we live our lives? Why did you say this? Why didn't you do that? Why did you post that tweet? Why did you post that selfie? Why did you make that comment? Why did you take that particular strategy? Isn't the answer often because we're more concerned about other people than we are about God? We fear men more than we fear God. We worry more about what creatures think of us than what the Creator thinks of us. And you know what? Even in admitting that, Saul can't shake the habit. He pleads with Samuel to join him so they can bow before the Lord. Why does he need Samuel to worship the Lord? Samuel tells him, no. God has rejected him because he rejected God's word. But, but Saul is insistent. He grabs Samuel's robe and tears it, and Samuel tells him, well, just like that, the kingdom is torn away from you. But he pleads even more, and Samuel gives in. He comes back with him so he can worship. But now his motive is more clear. He says, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. He wants to worship the Lord with Samuel because it's important for him to be seen by the leaders with the prophet. It's about appearances for Saul. It's about what the people think of him. He wants to be seen. He wants to be perceived as a righteous and holy leader. That is more important to him than actually being a righteous and holy leader. Maybe that's what the sacrifices were all about. Offering all these sacrifices, you could give the Evidence to the people that he is a king who does great worship for his God. And then the people will revel in the splendor of this king who puts on these great worship uh, sacrifice parades like the other great kings of the other nations. But that's not what God said. There were other times, there were other places where God would have desired that, where God might have even commanded that or at least enjoyed that. We we, we see that in Scripture. In a vacuum, those things might have been good. But what did God say? What did God say? This leads to three consequences. Of course, losing the right to be king is a considerable consequence, but the first two consequences of, of these three underscore that one. First, in, in verses 32 through 33, Samuel calls for King Agog. And, and Samuel, we've been calling a prophet this morning, and, and he is, but if you've been following the series, you know he's also a judge. He's the last judge over Israel. And a judge in ancient Israel was sort of one part religious leader and, and one part rescuer 
from Israel's enemies. And when the people asked for a king, they essentially wanted a king to not only to rule, but to take the place of the system of judges that God had established. But among all the judges in Israel's history, Samuel had generally stayed away from battle. He was more of a peaceable judge. You read the book of Judges, and you see a lot of judges who conducted a lot of warfare. That usually wasn't Samuel's M.O. But on this day at Gilgal, Samuel had no problem taking a sword. With King Saul having been judged by God and no longer worthy to lead God's people, Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Likely not just before the Lord, but before Israel and those leaders Saul was so concerned about. It was probably a potent symbol that the authority of King Saul to be a judge and to deliver Israel from God's enemy had come to an end. Samuel killed Agog because Saul was no longer God's man for the job. Second, then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gebeah and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. There's a scene similar to the last time they met in Gilgal. Samuel, the prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God, the source of God's revelation and God's word departs from Saul's life. But this time it is absolutely permanent. There would not be another chance for Saul. Saul wanted so desperately to be seen again in person with Samuel. But when it happens, Samuel shows Israel that there is only one judge left in Israel, and it is not Saul. And then he makes sure Saul will never have the privilege of gaining clout by showing up near Samuel again. That may be what hurt Saul the most. What should have hurt Saul the most was how the remainder of his life would have been empty of hearing from God through God's prophet. And there's a third consequence. Mourning. Sadness. And it comes from two directions. Because look at that last verse. Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel grieves over Saul. He is saddened. He's broken. Earlier he was angry, but he's not just mad. He's sad. I I think many of us do one of those two better than the other. Some of us are really good at getting angry about evil, but do we also grieve over it? That's how we better reflect Christ's heart over sin why do i say that because because look at the lord the lord regretted he made saul king over israel even the lord grieved that the idea of god having regrets is is a is a trippy idea that we can only scratch the surface of after all in this passage using the very same word we read first in verse 29 that Uh, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then in verse 35, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. What do you do with that? 
Um, there, there are types of decisions, I think, like the one in verse 29 where God's decision is final and there's no room for flexibility and the matter is settled. And there are decisions like Saul's kingship, which from a human perspective are conditional. And in this case, conditional upon God's or upon Saul's faithfulness, a condition which he did not meet. Even though God knows the future and he's not surprised by anything, as the ultimate leader of his people, God that is, he is personally invested in their, in our spiritual fruitfulness. And so when Saul failed, he grieved. When we fail, when we disobey God, God grieves. God regrets. Saul wasn't good enough to save Israel. God was going to give the kingdom to a better man, and we need a better man than Saul. God has given us a better man than Saul. That man is Jesus Christ. He is a a leader who judges fairly, who never disobeyed the Father's commands, and rather than live for himself and others' approval, he did something radically different. Many of us are, are like the Israelites. We jump on the spoils of war, all the perverse goodies of this world that we crave and thirst after. Many of us are like Saul. We, we think we're good people, but we've alternately spent our time trying to prove to others how good we are or proving to ourselves how good we are instead of doing the one thing that matters, hearing God and obeying God. While Saul was busy worrying about what others were doing or what others were thinking, Jesus set aside his ego and climbed on a cross. And though like the Amalekites deserve to die for their sins and we deserve to die for our sins, Jesus set aside his rights and his priorities and he died on, in place of his people so that they might go free. So he's sort of like the anti-Saul. He, he came to serve others rather than himself and that is the heart of the Christian message that those who are like the Israelites, even those who are like Saul, even those who are like the Amalekites can live because Christ died for us. Following God is about more than following the good. If we are chasing what we think is good or only focused on things that seem to be good in the eyes of ourselves or the eyes of other people, we are very likely to miss the thing that matters most, which is God himself and what he has told us to do. Obedience is much more important than even the most honorable good deeds like our own worship and our sacrifice. If you felt like you have caught yourself living in a spiral of, of, of striving of, for good deeds and always coming short, well, you have. You have. Because obedience is a much higher bar. And thankfully, we have a better leader than Saul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a better leader than Saul and that he can come in where we have been disobedient and be obedient for us. May we rest in him and find hope. In his name we pray. Amen.
Please join us for